Welcome to episode 1186 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. We have the pleasure of doing another team preview podcast today. Naturally, we'll be talking to two writers from The Athletic who just raised another $20 million in funding and We'll probably hire all of the remaining writers that we are scheduled to talk to in this preseason series by the time we talk to them. But today we'll be talking to Pedro Mora about the Angels and Megan Montemuro about the Phillies. We will get to that shortly. But first, we've got some news. Ichiro Suzuki, back in the big leagues, baby. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I've ever heard you that excited. I don't know if this is sincere or not. I don't think I've ever said baby non-ironically in real life before. This isn't real life. It's just a podcast. I never would have expected that you would have. Yeah. Also, I'm just receiving word that this podcast is now brought to you by The Athletic. (laughs) You'd think I'm sort of insulted that it's not. The Athletic hasn't tried to hire either of us last I heard. So I don't know what the holdup is, guys. So... I want to ask about Ichiro. You may have a a different, more personal perspective on this question than many people might. I have no rooting interest in the Seattle Mariners particularly, and so I am just purely pleased that Ichiro Suzuki is still a Major League Baseball player. I don't know if the reaction is completely positive among Mariners fans who... No. (laughs) Okay, I know that it's not completely positive among Mariners fans who obviously have a high approval rating of Ichiro. But perhaps not of a, what, 44-year-old Ichiro as a player. We don't have the actual terms yet as we speak, but it's a one-year deal pending a physical. I can't imagine Ichiro failing a physical at any age, so I assume that he will sail through that, but... He is nowhere near the player that he was even when he last played for the Mariners, and even then he was nowhere near the player he was when he was in his peak and prime for the Mariners. A lot of people have made the Ken Griffey Jr. jokes about a player coming back to the Mariners in his twilight years and falling asleep in the clubhouse Doesn't seem like the sort of thing that will happen to Ichiro. He hasn't let himself go. I can't imagine him napping, but he obviously doesn't contribute either offensively or defensively the way he once did. So is this purely a publicity play? Is that a bad thing? Can he help the Mariners given that they are somewhat shorthanded in the outfield right now? Give me all your thoughts and feelings and emotions. This one was hard. When this news broke, I thought I should write about this. And then I sat at my computer for about two hours and I thought, I have nothing to say. I expected to have <laughs> something to say, but, you know, he's a he's old. I, in terms of from the fan perspective, I can't really offer that so much anymore. I'm just not that connected to the Mariners emotionally. And so from my standpoint, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Why not play Etro? Who cares? It'll bring people out. And, you know, he's going to be a fourth, maybe fifth outfielder. They signed him because Ben Gamble is hurt. But what's weird, people have compared this to the Griffey thing, and I get it. But there's somewhat of a parallel also to the fact that the Mariners have Edgar Martinez as their hitting coach. And presumably it's worked out fine to this point. I don't think anyone has really complained. But the thing that I thought at the very beginning was that you can't fire 
Edgar Martinez. So I don't know how it ends when his <laughs> when he's done being the hitting coach. And similarly, the Mariners can't cut Ichiro. I mean, now I know that they traded him once. So, you know, that was to give him a shot at the playoffs and they could do it again. But something tells me Ichiro is not going to have a whole lot of trade value this season. So you can't, I don't think that you can cut him. So right. you have him and that's it. Griffey voluntarily retired midseason, right? I mean, maybe yeah. he was pressured the same, to, I don't know. The same but... night that Armando Galarraga <laughs> was throwing a 28-out perfect game, and I was responsible for covering all of baseball for SB Nation, <laughs> Ken Griffey Jr. up and retired suddenly and drove <laughs> one way to Florida from Seattle. <laughs> yeah. Early June, I think it was. Yeah. Can't imagine Ichiro walking away voluntarily, even if he's not playing particularly well. I mean, I'm sure he doesn't want to embarrass himself, but he does seem to want to play as long as anyone will let him play yeah and it look he's not very good relative to what he was that much is obvious he hasn't been a very good everyday player since 2010 been a long time the Phillies were great back then Mm -hmm. but you know last year Ichiro not a good hitter the season before perfectly average hitter and he played pretty often for Miami and even if you look at last season and this is just tooling around with numbers for no real reason but first half each row bad second half above average hitter he had more yeah. walks than strikeouts he batted 299 hit for a little bit of power so yeah. like each row has enough we're talking about a, a fourth or fifth outfielder he's stepping in for guillermo heredia so like this is not an important <laughs> role but it does reintroduce this polarization there are a lot of people who are excited about this and this is a good reminder that baseball is a business and the business should be interested in having Ichiro uh, around because he's in a role where I don't think that this is just publicity. There is a role for him right now. And, you know, you can put Heredia in the minors or something. This When you have Ben Gamble and Guillermo Heredia as half of your available outfielders, someone is probably going to be in the minor leagues. You're just not very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, everyone's happy to see Ichiro. I'm sure Mariners fans are especially happy to see Ichiro. I'm sure they would rather use that roster spot on a really good player who would make the Mariners demonstrably better. And maybe they feel that there are players still out there who would improve this team, certainly pitchers who would improve this team. So if it were at the expense of one of those moves, then you could criticize it. But if one of those moves was not pending anyway for whatever reason, then there isn't really a great opportunity cost here. And no. so I mean, like John Jay is a free agent, but you know, maybe maybe John Jay wants more money, or maybe John Jay doesn't want to be the fourth or fifth outfielder. He was a league average hitter last year, league average hitter the year before that. John Jay could probably start somewhere, so maybe he doesn't want to go to Seattle. So I understand that, you know, there are better players out there, but maybe they weren't available. And each row probably costs like one or two million dollars. It's it's hardly anything but it's it's just going to get weird if he's bad because he's just going to be bad and there mm-hmm. and you can't bench him all the time and you can't cut him so i don't know you can see how it could get complicated but since he'll be on the bench maybe it's not that big of a deal and what i learned somewhat amazingly is that last season by statcast's sprint speed Ichiro Suzuki ranked in 324th place yeah behind such fast luminaries as mark canha Kyle Seeger, Michael Franco, but he did finish just ahead of, I don't know, who's the funniest one here? Well, look, there's <laughs> just there's some plotters. Ichiro was faster than than some plotters. Jan Gomes is a catcher. Ichiro was as fast as him last season. So I don't know what exactly has happened. You can you can look at the statistical profile and pretty much all that Ichiro has left is that he can put the bat on the ball. He still has those silly hits. Mm-hmm. But, you know, his he doesn't have the arm he used to. He doesn't have the speed he used to. He doesn't even have the contact skills entirely that he used to. The power that he showed sometimes isn't really there anymore. 
Coincidentally, last season, he was almost exactly tied in his average exit velocities as D. Gordon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's older and younger Retro in the same outfield now, which is kind of nice. Yeah, he can at least probably play a, a corner outfield position capably, which is maybe all he'll need to do in this role from time to time. I wrote about him last season because he was actually chasing the all-time single-season pinch hits record, which I thought would be amazing if he were able to do that. Obviously, he already has the single-season hits record, period. I thought it would be really cool if he could have both of those records. Unfortunately, I think he fell one short. He ended up with 27 pinch hits last year, and I believe the record is John Vanderwall with 28, although he was playing in Coors Field in 1995. So if we park and era adjust that thing i think Ichiro's probably got that record but that just i think speaks to how singular Ichiro is as a player who is willing to take on this much smaller role i think not for like pete rose-esque reasons of just wanting to increase his tally or set records but just because he really loves playing baseball and sometimes he wants to pitch and he's fine with pinch hitting and he had a role last year that really doesn't exist in the modern game anymore of just like dedicated pinch hitter no one is really devoting the roster spots to bench players anymore to even make that possible so he was just sort of an anachronism in multiple ways last year and obviously i'm just happy that he is still around in some capacity whether it comes at the expense of the mariners or helps them in some way and he, he so each is going into his age 44 season and you know on the one hand that's extraordinary and on the other hand omar vizquel played his age 45 season in 2012 i don't know how many people remember that vizquel played for the blue jays got into 60 games he batted <laughs> 235 slugged basically 235 but you know Vizquel stuck around and that wasn't considered a publicity thing that was just a if, if you want to sign a guy who has experience this is literally what Omar Vizquel is when he's 45 years old he's just a flash bag full of major league baseball experience pre and post lockout so there are a lot of Mariners fans who are frustrated and kind of hate let's say I don't know the Mariners you know how the way that fans are but there's a lot of criticism of the team for just being so hung up on nostalgia and in 1995 in particular, the team loves to bring that season back up because it's the last time they did anything that was great, realistically. 2000, 2001, those are just disappointing. But there's mm-hmm. there's so much of the perception of the team that it's hung up in the past. And very obviously, this doesn't help. But the only way to make those criticisms go away is to make the playoffs. And the team's fate this season, whether or not it's a playoff team, probably not going to come down to Ichiro Suzuki at the mm-hmm. age of 44. But, you know, I guess it would be appropriate if that were to happen. Ichiro or uh, maybe a very much declined Felix Hernandez gets the start. I don't know. It could be gross. Yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to briefly bring up an unsigned player. Of all the stories this offseason about the slow-moving market and speculation about collusion, many of them I've you know been able to rationalize in some way. And okay, J.D. Martinez had a big offer out there and Hosmer had a big offer out there. And that's why they weren't signing. They were holding out for salaries that maybe just weren't entirely reasonable. So... You can say that about some guys. You can't say that about all guys. And I think the one news story that maybe has caught my attention more than any other in that genre is the note about Neil Walker. 
who evidently was offered a minor league invite to spring training, and I guess that's the best offer he's received so far, at least according to this tidbit. This was the Royals who tried to bring him to big league camp. He was not receptive to that, as Nick Cafardo wrote, and understandably so, in that Neil Walker is good. (laughs) So I don't blame him for not wanting to take a minor league invite. I don't know if this was Royals-specific, if he had any uh, more attractive offers elsewhere. If he had, you'd think he probably would have accepted one by now. But when we were doing our top 10 positional rankings for MLB Network, this was, I don't know, a, a month or two ago, I'm pretty sure I had Neil Walker at the bottom of my top 10 at second base. I was just kind of choosing between him and a few other guys who were almost indistinguishable from him. And I think he might've ended up in my 10th spot, but Neil Walker's good, right? I mean, not the most durable guy. He's had injury issues the last couple seasons, hasn't played full seasons, but he's only 32. He has really never had a below average full season in his entire career. He's been a well above average hitter over the past several years. Seems like there are a lot of teams that would be better with Neil Walker than they are currently. And now this is sort of the same pool of teams that would benefit from signing Mike Moustakis. But, you know, he's out there. And this is a little reminiscent. We were just talking about Justin Upton the other day. And uh, Upton had spoken with Pedro Mora, and he was reflecting on his free agency. After 2015, he said teams offered him a bunch of one-year contracts. And, of course, he wound up signing for six years and a whole bunch of money with the Tigers. But one-year contracts for a guy who was going into his age 28 season, who was coming off a a three-and-a-half win season with a 119 WRC+. plus. He'd never been bad. He'd always been really good. He was entering his prime. And then... Just didn't make any sense. He knew he didn't make any sense. His agent knew it didn't make any sense. And so he didn't sign one of those contracts. But I don't know. It just seems like it's it seems like it's a bad time to be a decent second baseman, but it also seems like it's a bad time to be a decent first baseman or designated hitter. It just seems like it's a bad time to be a decent veteran baseball player because I don't know how many teams are wowed by decent position players anymore now that they think that they can develop them more. That's anecdotal. But I mm-hmm. I suspect it's a lot of what's going on, at least with, with like a decent starting pitcher. You can sign that guy because he's proven and, and maybe he's going to be more durable. And you know you can't really rely on your rookies. But a, a two-win position player or something like that, teams just think, well, maybe we'll get this guy to hit his balls in the air and then he'll be a two-win position player. So why not just mm-hmm. stay cheap? Yeah, definitely. Anyway, I would be frustrated if I were Neil Walker. I would feel like I deserved better. He has certainly put the time in and has generated the production. So would not have expected that Neil Walker would be in this spot. So the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, on Monday, you published a post about bullpens. And this is not the first article ever written on this subject. I remember one that Sam did several years ago at this point, I think maybe after that first really surprising Orioles season. And the idea is that bullpens are unpredictable, they're inconsistent, they're less stable from season to season than, say, a team's offense or a team's starting rotation. And bullpens, the correlation from year to year is extremely weak, not non-existent, but very weak. And that's still the case, I suppose. I don't know what years you were using the last decade, right? And so I don't know whether this has changed in the last few years as teams seem to have gone all in on super pens in some cases, or maybe they've 
gotten better at just finding guys, pulling guys off the scrap heap, although if they had, that would maybe just only make these bullpens more unpredictable, but... It's an important point to remember if your team had a lousy bullpen last year, then maybe it will just be better for no apparent reason this year and vice versa. Yeah, I struggled with I was looking at this topic last week and I couldn't come up with a great way to frame it and I still couldn't. So I just put some numbers out there with some R squared values and and that was it. But essentially, this isn't saying anything that people didn't already suspect, but bullpens are extremely volatile and Last year's best bullpen, at least it's most the most effective bullpen, was the Red Sox, and that had Craig Kimbrell, which makes a lot of sense. But Red Sox bullpen was supposed to be something like average, and it was supposed to have Carson Smith and Tyler Thornburg and Robbie Ross Jr., and instead it had basically none of those guys, and it still overachieved. And my favorite factoid from last year is that the going in, the Diamondbacks were projected to have the worst bullpen in baseball. And they were mm-hmm. one of the best, mostly because yeah. of Archie Bradley. And he decided he was going to throw strikes and throw four miles per hour harder out of the bullpen. That was great. It was a good idea that he had. And so now he's maybe going to be the Diamondbacks closer moving forward. So there's just so much unpredictability to it, which is frustrating. Uh, you can tell that it can't be that Tiffany Swarzak and Brandon Morrow and more relievers get these big contracts as free agents. And those were nobodies a year ago. And so for them to get guaranteed money, it means teams now believe in them. Whereas if every team thought they could find the next Anthony Swarzak, then they wouldn't give money to these guys. They just go find the next one. Well, they haven't been giving money to the next ones. We don't know who the next ones are. Nobody does. So it's frustrating. Uh, it's all I can say. I don't know how much mm-hmm. there's like inside knowledge in baseball in terms of making bullpens more projectable, but credit to teams like the Orioles and the Royals who seem to have pretty good bullpens every single season because most teams can't pull that off. And even the Orioles, like they had their big breakthrough, their 2012 miracle season. They had an unbelievable bullpen, most effective bullpen in years. And the next season, it was below average with yeah. pretty much the same group of arms. So, you know, even for a bullpen genius like Buck Showalter, who knows? Mm-hmm. All right. That's all I got. Anything you wanted to touch on? Well, only some quicker stuff. I think he got into one game, but as a consequence of said game, the Astros have placed Rule 5 pick Anthony Goes on outright waivers. Per uh-huh. sources, if he clears, they must offer him back to the Rangers. That's per Jake Kaplan of the, oh, what do you know, Athletic on Twitter. <laughs> so Anthony goes currently out of a job, which is yeah. too bad. He didn't record an out, right? Is that right? Or... <laughs> I, I believe that is true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's unfortunate. But although now, he uh, if he has any chance of making that Rangers pitching staff, we already talked about how the Rangers pitching staff is bizarre and sort of uniquely interesting in a way where it's not full of like young breakthrough candidates, but instead like old retread breakthrough mm-hmm. candidates or something. Yeah. Eh, why don't add goes to it? And separately, we're leaving Anthony goes behind now. I just started to play around with some spring training numbers because, you know, it's time. We mm-hmm. might as well. I can tell you that relative to last spring training in the early going, the home run rate is up. So something to <laughs> pay attention to. But yeah, there is a uh, there's one player who currently leads all hitters in runs scored, walks, and to confirm home runs, this player plays for the San Francisco Giants. Do you know who this player is? (laughs) I'll tell you, I didn't. (laughs) Then I definitely don't. Kyle Jensen. Who is Kyle Jensen? I don't know. (laughs) Kyle Jensen. I I had to look him up on Baseball Reference because I was curious because at at this point right now, Kyle Jensen has 11 at-bats. He has six (laughs) hits. Five of them is home runs and seven walks. 
So he's his OPS is two point six three one. Whatever. He's uh he's currently leading the home run pool. He's actually tied with Jason Kipnis, but then Miguel Andujar, Ian Happ, and Austin Hedges are there with four. Spring training is crazy time for everyone. But Kyle Jensen is uh he's going into his age thirty season. I was trying to figure out what happened because he spent last season technically in Japan, played for Hawks, and I thought, oh, maybe this is a guy who like had power and he struck out too much, and then he went to Japan, then he figured something out, and then he came back, and he's mm-hmm. a good hitter now. Well, he batted 14 times in Japan. (laughs) I don't know what happened. He batted 14 times. He struck out nine of those times. And then that was it. And now he's back. And he's better than the rest of the world. So I don't know what Kyle Jensen is doing, but I guess he's probably going to be the Giants cleanup hitter. All right. Well, we will monitor Kyle Jensen along with the rest of the league. I guess he is inflating the home run rate all on his own. All right. So we will take a very quick break. And we'll be back with Pedro Mora to talk about the Angels. Like a blow to the head has left me stunned And I'm reeling, yeah, I'm reeling And if you go, furious angels will bring you back to me Okay, our first guest is Pedro Mora. He is a senior MLB writer for The Athletic. I don't know if he started out as a senior MLB writer or if The Athletic has just hired so many people in the three weeks since he started that he now has seniority. But either way, he is joining us now to talk about the Angels. Hey, Pedro, how are you? I am doing well, guys. Thank you for having me on. So listening to you and Andy McCullough on the great and departed podcast, Sports Writers Blues RIP, over the last couple of years, I noticed that when you two talked about the teams that you covered, Andy would tend to talk about his team more. Maybe that's just because Andy tends to talk more, but also there was usually more to say about the Dodgers in that they were the better team and they had... 12 good starters and they had the best players of baseball and the best record in baseball and then he would give you like two minutes at the end of each episode to talk about Mike Trout or something and that was it but now maybe the tables have turned I don't know the Dodgers are still interesting but the Angels might be the most interesting and watchable team in baseball did you have any sense heading into this winter what was going to happen that you would be covering a team that is maybe everyone's most must-watch team heading into opening day? No, no definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that anyone really did. I think that, you know, there was a Friday morning at like 11 a.m. in December when it sort of all changed. So I could that was not predictable um, yeah. by any means. So I still don't think that, you know, I, I still expect there to be far more fan interest in July about the Dodgers and the Angels. Uh, I really do. So I think that, uh, well, for, to address your, your earlier comments, Andy definitely does talk a lot. Um, <laughs> but I think that the reason that we didn't talk about the angels that much is just because there wasn't always that much, like how much, how many times can you say that Mike Trout is as amazing in simplicity and, and, uh, near perfection? Like it's just, it's sort of a gets lot old. of times. You guys are a little bit more, uh, how can I say liberal in, uh, in how you, uh, in, in the topics that are that are related to Mike Trout that you can that you can cover on your podcast, yeah, than we could. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I I guess I sort of wish that we did, had talked about the Angels more. I definitely we definitely received some angry comments about how we didn't talk about the Angels very much. Uh-huh. So I apologize to those people if they're hearing this now. <laughs> well, fortunately, you're covering both teams now, so you don't need to choose anymore. But sticking with the Angels for today. I still don't really have 
a great sense of why Otani picked the Angels. I had Billy Epler on this podcast. I've read a lot about the courting process. I still don't exactly know what it was about the Angels pitch that sold him. Does anyone know? Do you know? I definitely do not know, and I would argue that no one knows. So, <laughs> like, including the, the involved. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't think that uh, it's sort of. Here's what I would say: If you, um, how can I put this? There's a okay. So, like, a lot of our time right now in the world is, is spent trying to try to uh, evaluate the decision making of people uh, and and how they, you know. Uh, how rationality informs their decisions or doesn't yes it's really broad but i'm trying to i'm, I'm trying to be vague uh but in when i was covering college football uh th- there would be a lot of talk about um about recruits 17 year olds and what the, what decision they were making as far as what school and these kids would commit when they were like 15 and they would decommit and then they would recommit to a different school and all that sort of thing and basically it was just it was a pointless process to try to evaluate why they were picking what they were picking and um if you're 23 and you have um you know three, four weeks to make a decision and you choose to make that decision after one week, after a total of five hours with a, with a group of people, I don't think you can really like, not really worth your time to spend, uh, to, to try to evaluate what led a person to that. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't interested in, in really finding out everything there was to find out about all the parties involved. No one is, is, is presenting it like that. That was the case. I mean, he, he wasn't interested. He, he found a group of people that he, that he liked that were nice to him. And um, he liked the idea of living in Orange County. And, and he chose that. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't an exhaustive process by any means. So making that decision weeks before he had to, for me, is just maybe this comes from my journalistic background. It's like the idea of making a decision two weeks before I have to, feels like uh, the weirdest thing ever. So that's, I guess, what I would say. It's like it, he, it's a kid who made a decision because he wanted to, and that's all, really. In Texas, they're talking about putting together a six-man starting rotation because they have a whole lot of options, but few of them are great. And Cole Hamels recently came out and said, I don't like this very much. Let's not do this. And, you know, he's only one guy, and he wasn't very good last year. So who knows how important his words are. But the Angels are looking at possibility of a six-man rotation themselves. Of course, we don't need to cover that ground. This has been talked about even before Otani. There are a lot of capable starting pitchers on the team, and every single one of them has some sort of important health or injury question mark. So do you see that the Angels are going to go into the year with a six-man starting rotation? And if so, how long do you think it's it's going to last uh, because, you know, the uh, baseball tends to find its level and the level of a starting rotation is frequently not a six man rotation. Yeah, I think that they're going to do it um, for the entire season. But I think it's going to have uh, caveats. I think that some pitchers are going to pitch on five days rest pretty routinely. So I, I don't really know if that's a yes or a no. It's not going to be a full six man. I think that I, I would guess that if Garrett Richards remains healthy, most of his starts will be on five days rest during the season. I think there's going to be a lot of, of switching in and out uh, among those starters. I think that Otani is often going to start once a week whenever possible, like he did in Japan. And I think that with their, with their best starters, they're going to try to work them in as much as possible. I think that it's essentially going to like, there's not really almost even going to be a rotation. Like it is going to be fitting in the people where they, where they, where they can. Uh, so, but I think that with the majority of their guys, it will probably be on a six day schedule. So yes and no. Mm. So you wrote the Angels essay for the BP annual this year about front-loading contracts. I want to ask you about that, but I also want to front-load the Otani talk in this segment. So if we can just get that out of the way, 
I know that the Angels were planning to talk to his former team to ask about how they helped him prepare for the start of the season. Obviously, now he's learning new competition, a new country. You know, everything is different for him. So what is generally his schedule like during the day? How does he split his time? And just how much more time does it take for him to prepare for a dual role than it does for the typical player? Yeah, so he shows up uh, in the morning, like before 8 a.m., and sort of eats breakfast. He loves waffles, which has apparently become a really big deal in Japan. Mm-hmm. He then, you know, takes part in the team meeting. Before that, he he likes to play this this game on his phone with a, some of the other Angels players called Clash Royale, yeah. which apparently is a very popular game that I didn't know what it was called. Um, in fact, I misheard one of the players tell me about it and thought he said Asteroid Al and spent <laughs> like an hour trying to find the game Asteroid Al on the internet and could not find it. <laughs> it's really frustrating. <laughs> It took me like a, it, I, had, I had to make like four calls to find out what the game was called <laughs> because I can't hear. So, and then he, he takes part in the team meeting and then he goes and uh, takes a uh, batting practice, uh, plays catch if he's going to, if he's going to throw a bullpen that day uh, or plays catch most days. And, I mean, it's, it, I guess like, I don't really want to go through the whole thing. He, it's a longer day than most people. Uh, there was, there was one day in earlier this spring when he was, he was out in the field to like about three, three fifteen when most of the players had left by about one. So it's a, it's, it's an elongated schedule. He's not going to hit on the days that he pitches, like not take batting practice or anything. And like, for example, he, he pitched, uh, he pitched on Friday and he is not going to pitch again for, for another week. And, uh, and he didn't hit for two days after he pitched. So he could do more drills, uh, which is not going to happen during the season. I think if he's a good hitter that they're going to try to get him in the lineup on the two days after he pitches. So if it was a Friday, if he pitched on a Friday, he would hit on a Sunday, but they didn't do that this time. So it's um, basically to sum it up, they're they're trying to uh, base out his, his his two activities so that he's not doing both at the same time and, and overloading on on the two. But I think that basically what I'm expecting to happen during the season is he pitches, he rests, he hits, he rests, he hits, he rests, he pitches, on and on. That's that's I think the most likely occurrence. So a few years ago, Garrett Richards was injured and Andrew Haney was injured, and they both went the uh, the stem cell injection route for their UCLs, and Garrett Richards was able to recover. Haney was not able to recover. He had Tommy John surgery. And then more recently, JC Ramirez went through the same process, and he had the stem cell injection. And to this point, he, like Richards, has been able to avoid the Tommy John procedure. So at this point, you know, it's spring training, and everyone who isn't already injured is as just there's a fountain of optimism, and everyone's going to be great, and they can make all their regular starts. But how do the Angels talk about these guys' arms, thinking about Richards and and Ramirez specifically, because on the one hand, they could be sort of at the vanguard of new pitcher health and look what they were able to do and they didn't have to miss the 15 months or whatever for Tommy John. But on the other hand, how much faith is there in these ligaments to hold up? Because this remains still a little bit experimental. Yeah, that's that's a good question, Jeff. I think that basically one thing I've learned covering baseball is that most of the pitchers don't really um, count on remaining healthy for very long. Like it, it's just sort of part of the, the, the job is accepting that at any, any time you, you could become seriously injured and not be able to do your job for a year plus. So I don't know that it's, I say that to sort of illustrate that I don't think it's all that different with Richards and Ramirez. I think that like everyone knows that they, it could happen to them at any point. I mean, I think that 
I, it is my belief that a significant percentage of major league pitchers are pitching through some sort of partially torn UCL. So while, while Richards and Ramirez, you know, surely have had some of their ligament regenerated, probably not all of it. So it's basically like a matter of, let's say there's, you know, I, I don't know, this is total speculation, but let's say there's, it's, it's 80% regenerated, something like that. Is that really that much worse than most other pitchers? You know, obviously Jeff Passon reported that Otani had a partial tear and there's that, that sort of thing. It's like, I think that, I think that a lot of these guys, UCLs are not a hundred percent intact. I think that's sort of what pitching does to you. So to say that, like, I, I don't, you know, there might even be another pitcher in the Eagles organization who has a worse UCL off than, than Richards does, really. you know, and just because he was out for a while doesn't necessarily make it more likely that it's going to happen again. You know, that, that might also be the case. I don't know. It's, it's just, it's like, this is all pure, mostly speculation, but uh, they're counting on Richards because without him, they don't have the top, like, they don't have enough pitching talent to really, uh, dream of uh of contending i don't think it is my belief so if they need him to make 25 good starts they need him to be someone they can count on in the playoffs or else this whole wild card contention thing is just for not if uh if i remember at the winter meetings jeff pass published his otani damaged ucl article at like 11 p.m was that was that the worst night of your 2017 <laughs> um you know uh jeff that was a uh, it was not a great one uh i believe i was talking to you um actually when uh when i found out about it so yeah i think that was bad yeah yeah worst night of your 2017 for two reasons (laughs) (laughs) yeah you could say uh, i'm trying to think is it is it good or bad if i can't remember a worse night (laughs) there are many more nights to go so I want to ask another Otani question. I'm not done with him yet. So the first base positional log jam and DH situation cleared up a little bit when the Angels traded CJ Crone, but now they have Louis Valbuena, I guess, penciled in as the regular first baseman or the, the long half of the platoon. And then they have Pujols as well, who's maybe slotted in as DH more regularly, might see some time at first base. Neither of those guys should be expected to hit like a team would want a first baseman to hit. Pujols can't really be counted on to play in the field very often. So what are the implications for Otani? And has Otani raised or lowered his stock and I guess his perceived talent and performance as a hitter since he showed up in camp and started taking some swings and everyone got a good look at him because I think everyone was confident that he would be a good pitcher if not necessarily a durable one immediately but there was obviously a bigger error bar around the projection of his offensive talent even though he had been the best hitter in a very high level league at a very young age well to briefly address the first base situation i I agree with you i don't think that either of those guys are going to produce like you want a first baseman to produce but um that's all the angels really have i think valbuena is probably a plus defender at first base so if he puts up you know 100 ops plus that's that's pretty okay um, if you can do that, and Albert, I don't, I don't know. Um, he did lose some weight from last season, but he's still, you know, he's still a slow person. He's still 38 years old. Mm-hmm. He's still probably the slowest man in baseball. Yeah. And when you hit the ball, when you put the ball into play as much as he does, and you're as slow as he is, it's just like the upside on your batting average is just like not very high. Yes. Yeah. As far as Otani in in the hitting impressions, I mean, it's been like. I think he, at this point, um, as I'm talking to him, I think he's taken ten plate appearances, maybe nine, <laughs> in a game. So it's it's maybe a little a little early for me. He has huge power. You know, I knew that from videos, but he has huge power, like huge power. 
so that's really all I can sort of take away from the early part. I mean, he's not, he's not impatient. It's, it's, it's hard for me to, I guess I would frame it similar to how I, how people have been framing his pitching for a while, but it's like, it's hard for me to see how it would go and it would be a disaster. Mm-hmm. I think it's certainly possible he won't be a great hitter, but he is at least serviceable. I mean, he looks like a major league hitter. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do anything that, that makes you um, second guess his, his ability to sort of be, you know, approaching league average. Beyond that, I just don't, I don't feel like I know enough to even project anything. Mm-hmm. You've probably known this, but in case you didn't, Albert Pujols is under contract for a while, and he's expensive, and he's on the Angels, and he's going to be playing a lot, and he's coming off very obviously the worst season of his career, really not close at all. He was one of the least valuable players in baseball, according to Fangraphs. Now, he did manage to rack up his 101 RBI, so you know there's something for people to cling to, but when you have this team in the clubhouse around someone like Albert Pujols every day, how does his sort of clubhouse cachet rise or fall based on his production? I mean, this is still this is a Hall of Fame player, one of the best players of the last 20 years, one of the best players of the last 50 years, for God's sake. But how do people talk about Pujols and how do they interact with them? Because at least if you look at this from a front office perspective, this is going to get messy and it's going to get complicated but for now he's still an everyday player so is he just one of the guys or how do you how do you sort of walk on eggshells or do you even have to do that around someone who's clearly in the throes of physical decline yeah i think that the number one word i would use is just deference i think that players well a major league clubhouse is so run by service time it's like it, it's it's incredible no one could possibly understand like out on the outside how much the players respect each other just for their service time i mean it's if you had the, the most years, will get you the most respect. That's just what it is. That's why you wanted to be a senior MLB writer. <laughs> right. Yeah. I started as a junior and then they, they up me as a senior immediately. <laughs> With Albert, it's like, I have a feeling that the, the baseball fan community overestimates maybe how much active like leadership he provides. I don't mean that to really denigrate him in any way, but it's, let me tell a story, I guess, from this player who was with the Angels for a couple seasons. And I think halfway through his second year, he told me one time that he, ta- he had talked to Albert for the first time that day. <laughs> so this was, you know, 18 months into his tenure or something like that. They, they, at the, by that point, they had played something like 250 games together. <laughs> I don't know that it's, it's not something that he needs to really, they don't, I don't know, they don't talk that much, I guess maybe is the easiest way to say it. It's not like the players just hold, hold you know, they mind their own business more or less. I think that baseball is like, I, I believe that it's, it's more of an individual game than maybe fans want to think about. I think that that's how the players are, get good is just by focusing on themselves. I don't think they really care that much about, you know, they want to win when possible. Uh, but I think that they're basically just, you know, maximizing their own ability and skills. And I think that I don't know that a lot of the players on the Angels really know what Albert Pujols did last year. Like their his production. I think they they see this guy who they grew up watching. You know, he hits home runs sometimes and he, he's slow and that he makes a lot of outs. And uh, <laughs> and that's it. Like, I don't know that he, I don't know that they spend that much time like dissecting the ongoing failure of it and the fact that he has four more years uh, to go and the fact that it's not going to get any better. I don't know. Does this make sense? Do, am I like, are you guys understanding what I'm trying to get across? Yeah, I think so. And well, this gives me a good opportunity to go back to your annual essay that I referenced earlier, because it is about 
backloading contracts and how the, the angels have put off the pain on some of these deals and sort of mortgaged the future in a way to try to compete as much as possible in the present. And you also looked at it more on a, a league-wide level. So can you talk a little bit about the research that you did for that piece and also how it relates to the angels specifically? Yeah. So I just, I'm always been interested in front-loading contracts because I just feel like I like to do that in my own uh, life whenever possible in any context, you know, just like to commit, if I want to, if I have to commit something overall, I'd like to get rid of the the largest part of it at the outset. So I started, started uh, you know, you never see that in baseball. So really, it, it almost never happens. So I was, I, I essentially sought to figure out why. So I asked a bunch of people and it basically rarely makes sense to do that because of the money factor. And the fact that over six or seven years of a long-term deal, you know, you'd, you'd like that money to be concentrated at the end because the money will be less worthwhile or valuable at that point because of inflation. But that doesn't ex- exchange the fact that a lot of times uh, teams will heavily backload a deal. So essentially I made the argument that a um, an evenly distributed contract is, is more or less a front load because of inflation. But uh, the angels, of course, have not done that. They're, they're heavily backloading everything. Everything from CJ Wilson to Albert Pools to now Justin Upton, who they uh, who they convinced to opt out of his deal and re-signed to a deal that's worth more money, but is almost in in real life money barely uh, barely over what uh, what the earlier deal was, and they get him for an extra year. Hmm. So the idea is that uh, they commit, they essentially just push all of their responsibilities to as far back as possible to try to win now, because otherwise, they, if they don't do that. They can't win now, and uh, and I and with that, when I I actually went through and looked at every contract signed in the last four or five years in free agency, and um, I think it was less than five percent of deals were front loaded in any capacity, uh, and more than seventy percent were back loaded. Hmm. Uh, the other twenty were in the middle, and I asked people why that happens, and uh, basically players don't really want a uh, front load; they don't really care when the deal is, so they don't push for it. They don't care when the, when they get their money, as long as, long as they get their money. Uh, and the teams don't really want to do that because they're they're more um, present focused. You know, a GM it's rare that a GM really cares all that much about six years from now versus now because mm-hmm. he has to be sure that he still has a job six years from now. So it's um, I don't know. I, I was kind of disappointed with the essay. I thought that uh, I thought that I would come up with better reasons or more more uh, of a, an appeal to do a front load. I guess the only real reason that I came up with was that if you're going to have a club, uh, if you have it, like, let's say the 2000, uh, the 2015 Cubs, when they were getting, uh, what year did Chris Bryant debut? Was that 2015? Yes. Or 16? 15. Okay. So if you had something like that, where uh, you knew that in a couple of years, your good, your best players were going to be expensive, but right now they were cheap. You could sign a, uh, a player to like a three or four year deal where you paid him a lot of money up front. And then you, um, and then you let his, uh, his salary become Far more palatable in the, in the latter years when he was going to be a free agent. I'm talking about when he would be uh, not as good, but also still somewhat useful. And you could you could better fit him into your payroll when you have to pay your other guys our money. So I wrote that, and then the Phillies ended up signing Carlos Santana to essentially that same de- the, the deal that I was talking about, and I mean the, the ideal deal like that, where they're paying him, I believe, 25 in the first year, and then some combination of 35 over, over the next two. It's something to think about, I guess. I would say that, that just the idea of uh, maybe uh, maybe teams who are about to be good can can employ the front load. That's that's when it should be used. Uh, otherwise, it does make sense if you you know if you're a GM and you're trying to keep your job, it makes sense just backload. Otherwise. <laughs> You, you won't keep your job. Mm-hmm. The second longest tenured current manager in baseball is Bruce Bochy. He was hired in October of 2006. And uh, the actual longest tenured manager 
in Major League Baseball, of course, would be Mike Sosha, who was hired in November of 1897. And he is a he's entering the final year of his 10-year, $50 million contract. Mike Trout is entering his third year of finally making more money per year than his manager does. And when you think of the Angels, the Angels and Sosha are sort of inseparable, inextricable. Uh, Sosha is maybe the last or one of the last remaining old-school managers who seems to wield actual power. He's not just like the team's spokesperson. So is there a future of Mike Sosha in Anna, I should guess I should say Los Angeles is, are they looking <laughs> no, to Anaheim, continue? I'm sorry, in Anaheim. The Anaheim Angels have the manager, Mike Sosha. He's always managed Anaheim. He will continue to manage Anaheim for the season ahead. Is there a future for Sosha and the Angels, or are we actually going to see them go off the board and, and hire somebody new in a year? I'm sure that what they're saying right now is we don't really want to talk about this. It's a contract extension, right? But you know, how often have we heard about managers or teams saying that they don't want to deal with a lame duck manager? Right now, Mike Sosha would stand to be a lame duck manager. Yeah, it's a it's a thing I've wondered about. Billy Epler, he's a nice fellow, you know, pretty much universally liked around the game and um, has a good reputation of telling the truth and treating people well. He says that he gets along wonderfully with Mike Sosha. I've heard people in the organization do not. Uh, there are no stories that leak out about about their any, any fights that they have. So I am left to assume that they do get along considering you know Sosha's relationship with with the pre- the predecessor in that role it is really uh, an amazing thing that they've gotten along this well for 3 years when when it was as bad as it was between Depolo and Sosha i don't really know how to explain that it's a sort of a probably the thing i would most like to know is is how, about the angels is how that works how is that, how are they able to maintain that relationship all of that said i still would not be surprised if billy uh you know chooses his own guy Uh, at the end of this year. I think that they made this relationship work for three years, uh, I mean, going on three years now, but I just struggled to see how a GM whose, you know, stock is rising in the eyes of his owner and uh, in the league would, would opt to keep someone who is, um, how do I put this? Who is just uh, somewhat stubborn, I guess he, you know, he would describe himself as stubborn. That's fair to say. He's, he's, he's a very stubborn man. He likes to have control. He practices a lot of control over his team more than I think almost any manager in covering both teams this spring. It's been striking to me the difference in how camps are run between the Dodgers and the angels where um, Sosha is hands-on with a lot of players throughout an average day. And Dave Roberts is much more in a supervisory role, which is I'm sure is the, the norm around baseball. I just, I just got used to seeing a manager like actively coaching somebody for, you know, two hours a day, which I just do not think happens in baseball. So I think that um, all that to say that I think they've made this work for as long as they have. Uh, So has been there for, you know, this is going to be, this is a, it's incredible. I was, I was a child. I was in the fourth, fourth grade. I think when he started doing this, it just doesn't make sense to me that someone could do this as long as he does, as he has. And no one will after this, but I, I would bet that this is the last season. I think, I think I feel that way. Jeff and I just briefly bantered about his recent post about how inconsistent bullpens can be from season to season. The Angels bullpen was an example of that last year in a good way. I don't know that anyone expected a bullpen composed of those names to be one of the best in baseball, but it was. So are they counting on and expecting that to just happen again and transfer over to 2018? Or is that an area where you look at some possible regression in store? 
I think that uh, I, I think I like the bullpen that they've assembled. I think that Blake Parker, who sort of emerged out of nowhere last season, was really good. I don't think it was a I don't think it was a fluke. I think Jeff has written about this some. I think he's he's got a simple repertoire and he, and he executes it well. I think that um, basically the the path I've taken in the last few years is I don't really try I don't really evaluate like the the team's bullpen any team's bullpen beyond the top three uh, entering into a season because it's just going to be. There's just so much randomness and volatility at play that it's just a waste of time. You know, like Jim Johnson was bad in previous years, but like I would not at all be surprised if he put up 60 innings at a three ERA this year, and he's in the Angels bullpen. Keenan Middleton was okay last year. He throws hard. I think we talked about him a lot on this podcast last year. Mm-hmm. He was sort of unimpressive, but again, I wouldn't be surprised if he put up 65 innings at a 2.5 ERA. So it's just um, they have a guy who's good. They have probably two guys who are good between Bedrosian and Parker. And beyond that, it's just like you put people in who, who do something well and you, and you sort of try to let them do that, I guess. I'm a little surprised that they haven't brought in more uh, multi-inning guys, but I think that might still happen. Mm-hmm. It's always hard to put someone on the spot and ask if they think that something is the best that thing in baseball because that requires you having to have knowledge of all 30 teams on a moment's notice. But do you think that this is possibly the best defensive infield in baseball? It's really great. And there are two guys, obviously, on the corners who will be playing positions that they either haven't played professionally or haven't played primarily. But both of those guys are sliding over from more difficult positions in theory and thus should be able to handle their new assignments. And then, of course, you have Kinsler and Simmons up the middle. You have Maldonado behind the plate. It's just a really great defense. I don't even know how aggressive the Angels have been or will be about shifting or positioning or whether they even necessarily need to be with this collection of guys. I I would be hard-pressed to find a defense that that appears better. Mm Mm-hmm particularly on the infield. I think Simmons is so far ahead of other short of other defenders in the league for me. I never see a shortstop who looks as good as he does. I think Cozart's going to be good. I've hardly seen him play third this spring, but I, I, I just, I would struggle to see how it wouldn't work out. Gautzi Sakins of last year say that he is still moving fairly well, even at his advanced age. At first, doubling is pretty good. I think I mentioned that earlier. Albert is, is a little bit more uncertain, but Maldonado is tremendous behind the plate. He has, he has one of the strongest arms I've ever seen anyone boast as a catcher. It is incredible. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of shifting, too. They told their players that they shift the second most in baseball. Fangraphs doesn't have it that quite that high, but they shift a lot. They mm-hmm. definitely shift a lot, and they definitely have a very good defense. And I think that's um, – if you can ever ascribe, like, a mold of a team to a, to a front office, I think the Angels, you know, do value defense more than most. Mm-hmm. I, if I may interject, I can tell you that there is a post scheduled for Tuesday morning at Fangraphs uh, that points out that the Angels do have the best projected team defense in baseball. All right, then. <laughs> Perfect. You know who is second, Jeff? Uh, the Cubs. Ah, okay. Then the Red Sox. Okay. All right. So last thing, we always end with the 2018 win total prediction. So I want to ask you how many games the Angels will win in 2018. But I also want to ask you to predict whether the signature highlight of Otani's 2018 will be a pitching highlight or a hitting highlight. And I don't know how you'll determine the answer to that question. And I don't care which prediction you make first. But those are the two. Um. 84. Okay. And hitting. Okay. What's the rationale for hitting? I think that um, he could hit a huge home run that is more likely to be to be widely shared than a than a nasty strikeout. I don't know. I'm already rethinking my logic. Uh, <laughs> His gifts are already was, getting around. Yeah, that's the thing. Is the Friday game in Maryvale? There was that those things are blowing up on the internet. But uh, yeah. But will there be one signature pitch? I guess is that that's the good question. Is like. 
when you say right. the signature highlight, it's not, you know, it, maybe the pitching will be numbers two through 10, but if he hits a 480 foot home run, <laughs> couldn't that be the best? Yeah. I think, yeah. I, I think I stand by my hitting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could Shohei Otani throw a pitch so good that Shohei Otani couldn't hit a home run against it? <laughs> I think he uh, could. Wow. Yeah. Um, possibly true. Possibly true. <laughs> Yeah, I think probably a lot of worse pitchers could throw a pitch that Otani couldn't homer against. I'm sure we'll see many of those pitches happen this season. Shut up. But Yeah. <laughs> All right. You can follow Pedro at The Athletic Los Angeles, where he will be writing about the Angels and the Dodgers. You can also find him on Twitter at Pedro Mora. Thank you, Pedro. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. We'll take a quick break now, and we'll be back in just a moment with Megan Montemuro to talk about the Phillies. So we are back, and we are joined now by Megan Montemuro, who covers the Phillies for the Athletic Philadelphia. Hey, Megan, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? All right. So this is not your first time at Philly Spring Training, so I'm curious how Philly Spring Training differs in the Gabe Kapler era. How is this different from a Pete McCannon-run Spring Training so far? I'd say the biggest thing is positivity. That's really been the message from Kapler and the coaching staff. It's something that been echoed by the players there's certainly a different vibe in the clubhouse which I think in part is because it is a very young clubhouse there's not that many veterans so you're gonna have you know kind of a little more chilled environment and you know he definitely really promotes positivity and looks for the positives and things and you hear that a lot just from talking to players and they're loose making definitely for more laid back camp workouts before games started weren't going as long they were about maybe an hour and a half and Kapler would often let some guys especially veterans be done early so guys like Pat Neshek and Tommy Hunter they would be leaving before the field work would be done because they want guys to you know be off their feet They've really been preaching workload management. So it's definitely been a very different kind of camp, which has been interesting to see. Yeah. But it's not it also it's not surprising given who Gabe Kapler is. Yeah, exactly. So does it help that this is a young team? I mean, I can imagine, you know, I I've enjoyed my own interactions with Kapler, but I could imagine that on a veteran team with guys who are maybe used to doing things a different way or at a different speed, they might mind having someone come in who is very different temperamentally and physically and strategically and in every way it's possible to compare to a major league manager. So maybe it would help that for a lot of these guys, he is either their first major league manager or they just haven't been around long enough really to become accustomed to one way of doing things. Yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. You have most of the 40-man roster and certainly the 25-man roster comprised of guys that for the most part have three years of big league experience or less. So, you know, they're not really set in their ways. You know, they kind of have to go with the flow. And I think the veterans, they did bring in guys like Nishak and Tommy Hunter, Carlos Santana. They're more chilled guys. They're not 
someone I would really, they're not guys that I would consider really harsh rule followers mm-hmm. in the sense of, you know, it's their way or the highway kind of thing. So I think it's a good mix of guys and talent that are willing to buy into what Kapler's preaching and what he's saying. Now, maybe that changes on a 10 game losing streak and guys don't want to hear positive stuff you know, after you lose your 10th straight game and it's the middle of summer and things are going poorly. Mm-hmm. So that'll be something that's, that I'm personally fascinated to watch and see, you know, if, is Kapler going to change his tone? Is he going to really stick to this positivity vibe? Will he kind of read the room and, and adjust accordingly? So I think that's the most interesting thing. But I think for him, it's huge that you don't have those 10 plus year veteran guys that have no interest in changing what they've been doing. You recently wrote an article about a 26-year-old Dana Parks, who is a relatively recent hire for the Phillies Player Development Department. And if I could just read one of your own paragraphs right back to you for no great reason. Quote, she's one of three women in the Phillies 11-person Player Development Department, joined by Language Education and Cultural Assimilation Manager Kia Berman. Kia, Kia Berman? I believe, I'm not actually... I believe it's Kia. Kia Berman. Let's go with Kia. You've, uh, you've validated me here. And, uh, and mental skills coach Hannah Thurley, the trio as well as Corinne Landry, Fangraphs uh, Emeritus, uh, an analyst in the research and development department who were all hired within the last seven months. So in this article, you you go on to talk a little bit about the Phillies pursuit of, I guess, intellectual diversity. But when, when you read a paragraph or it's specifically a line like that, where you have four women all being hired within seven months in a male-dominated industry, is that how did this come to be? Because it's it's a little, it's almost too much to be a coincidence, you know? Well, a lot of it is people knowing each other. So within the story, Joe Jordan, the Phillies director of player development, had seen Dana at Florida Gulf Coast League games and just around the league because she had been working for the Rays. So she was doing scouting stuff for them. So he was doing his own scouting uh, work and around games during the year. And so he saw her frequently and she had, in, in, in Dana's case, she had interned previously with the Phillies, although it wasn't a baseball operations kind of internship, but he knew who she was dating back to a couple of years ago. So part of it was, you know, in her case, she was on the radar for Hannah Thurley. She had done an internship with the Pirates and had come well-recommended so a lot of it has to do with, I think, women having opportunities starting earlier in careers where, you know, they're getting internships and they're more visible around the ballpark. So, you know, I don't, I think a lot of it still kind of relates to you hire what you know, and if you see these people around and you're interacting with them, uh, it puts them on their radar. And so I think that plays a lot into it just from, like I said, Joe Jordan had seen Dana Parks around the ballpark. He had noticed how she acted during games. You know, she wasn't talking to scouts the entire time. She was intently watching the game, taking her own notes. So that, for her especially, that that really played a big part in it. And I think, again, it goes to MLB has trying to make changes and create programs where you're getting some of these diverse candidates into the league and into front office internships sooner because that will ultimately lead to more diversity as people climb the, la- the ladder within organizations. So I think uh, it, 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 there's an element of knowing connections and, you know, being around in the environment. 
And the roster itself is pretty diverse, at least in terms of national origin. The Phillies, according to Roster Resource, their 40-man right now is only 52.5% composed of U.S.-born players. Only the White Sox have a lower percentage of U.S.-born players on their 40-man. I think the average is around 68.5%. So that seems significant. Is that the result of an intentional effort to uh, make more of an effort in international markets and do you know of anything that the team is doing specifically to try to ease the transition for those players is it noticeable in the clubhouse in either a positive or negative way that you have a big blend of people from all over the world yeah they certainly have devoted resources over the years to investing in an international market. If you look at some of their key guys, Franco, Freddie Galvis, until they traded him, Cesar Hernandez, these are guys that, you know, they've had their eyes on since they were 16 and they brought them into the organization and have developed them. They've done a really good job with that, even through the years where, you know, they were successful and not hitting on those draft picks. They still were invested in the international market. For for all the uh, rightful criticism, the Phillies organization has gotten and the attention they've received uh, the, the pre-Matt Klintak era, while that was justified in the terms of their old school mentality, I think one thing that they have been really good at is tapping into the international market and taking advantage of that and using their scouts. I always mispronounce his last name, but Sal Agostinelli. Sorry, I stumbled over that. But he's the Phillies director of international scouting, and he is a huge part of that, and he's been a a really key cog in their in an international uh, scouting department. Um, so, you know, the organization is thrilled with the work that he's done and, and his scouts have done. So that's been a big component in terms of, you know, around the team, you know, I think it, it it's, it's a difference maker when you have more guys that, you know, have the same cultural backgrounds and there's just, it creates more of a comfort level um, when you have shared experiences and shared backgrounds. And I, I think, you know, it helps a lot of guys too. You know, Carlos Santana has taken the, the initiative to be a mentor to Michael Franco. It's something organic that's developed. It's not something that the Phillies pressed upon Santana upon signing him. Uh, their lockers are right next to each other in spring training. And, you know, they're both from the Dominican Republic. So, I think that really goes a long way in terms of making guys comfortable when they get to the big leagues. And I will also add, I think it's it's been a huge help with MLB mandating Spanish interpreters Mm -hmm. for each team. It helps them communicate better amongst whether teammates or if if there's information that they need to receive, having it explained to them, you know, with someone that's in the communications and PR departments. And it allows, I think, you know, their their stories get to be, shared and told and in a better way because you have somebody that's explaining it and you're not having a coach interpret it and potentially, you know, not exactly be upfront with the players saying. So I, I really think the Phillies have done a good job in that department and you're going to see guys on the field this year, you know, who, who have followed that path and ha- have the potential to, to have a big hand in their success. There's going to be a lot going on with the Phillies this season. There already is, but one of the things that's gotten the Phillies the most attention so far in the spring has been this thing where they're rotating outfielders between left and right field to try to play the percentages and get the better defender in the better spot. Now, it's it's not hard to see how that might happen with, say, a Tommy Joseph, and uh, you'll see it with a, a few other players. But right now, we still got about, what, three, four weeks until the season starts. How often do you think 
we're actually going to see this in regular season games with the regular outfielders that they have on the roster because of course we haven't really seen this very much in the history of meaningful baseball yeah so at this point it's a little hard to tell for sure it's going to depend on who they're facing in the moment it's it's really it's more batter dependent than what the outfielders are doing obviously um based on the data so they've done it with reese hoskins already they've had him flip-flop and move to right field mid-inning so they're they're getting anyone that could be an outfielder during the regular season they're working them into getting used to switching mid-inning they've done it with aaron altair they've done it with hoskins they've done it with dylan cousins and they've done it with tommy joseph so this is a, a concerted effort to make this feel natural for these guys. One thing Gabe Kapler brought up was one reason that they're really interested in figuring this out is he asked Hoskins after he did it one time after the game, uh, if he was feeling winded at all doing it, because if he's leading off the next inning, do they want to be doing it and have him, you know, feeling like he has to catch his breath if it ends the inning, you know, on, on that play. Um, so that was kind of interesting. The pitchers are basically not really thinking about it. Asking them about it, they said it, ha- it doesn't change their approach as to how they would attack a hitter. They wouldn't, you know, stay away from going outside with hard stuff in fear of it being poked to right field with the lesser outfielder in that position. So it, it's an interesting dynamic. I, I don't think it'll be something that happens too frequently in a game. But for example, in Bradenton the other day with Corey Dickerson batting, they switched mid-inning. So if, you, if you're going to do it with a regular guy that you could face, you know, three times a game in a three-game series, then yeah, it could it could look kind of frequent. But their, their goal is to kind of gauge how comfortable the outfielders feel with it, to see how well it works. So it's definitely an experiment. And, you know, their message has been, hey, this is what spring training is for, is to try out these things. It's to you know, see how the best way to relay field outfield alignment from assistant pitching coach Chris Young and the signals that he gives each of the three outfielders for where he wants them aligned for every batter. Uh, so there, so I think the thing you'll see more frequently is some potentially dramatic outfield shifts. You know, where guys are shaded for a pull and you're sacrificing half of right field. So I think that's going to be much more noticeable. And it's it and, and they'll play the matchup game for the data in terms of flip flopping the corner outfielders uh, mid inning. But it's certainly an interesting ex- experiment. It it nearly backfired the other day in Bradenton when they sent Altair to left field and Dylan Cousins to right field, and he barely caught a ball that probably Altair would have had easily, and, and a, a run would have scored on it. So something to watch if they end up adjusting and not doing not using it for certain outfielders. One of the main takeaways from your responses, apparently there there's a third Chris Young active in, in baseball right now, which we didn't need. I, I know this is all so new to you. It's new to us. It's new to all the listeners. But just in, in terms of what you have been able to to talk about with this defensive shifting, I know one of the concerns is like how if you take Reese Hoskins, he'll be seeing a lot of outfield time. How does he feel about being the designated weak link? You know, when you're going to be swapping someone like this, it's pretty obvious which guy you're favoring and which guy you think is the worst defender. Is that, I mean, is that just something that he understands about himself? Because you can see how egos could get in the way here. Yeah, I think for this group of guys, I think they kind of understand. It it helps that there's data that is presented to them. And, you you know, there's so much information now. It's easy to say, okay, like, you know, this is what our information shows, how much ground you typically cover. For somebody like Reese Hoskins, it's a smaller sample size since he really didn't play it in the minors and, you know, he had limited action last year there too. But, you know, there's so much information now that 
that's kind of what the Phillies are about too in this coaching staff. It's hard to really refute some of their stuff because they'll show the information and the numbers and say, hey, this is why we're doing it. Do you have any questions about it? Are you uncomfortable with it? Like it's a very, they really promote the communication process. Um, so I don't think just from talking to guys, I don't get the impression that they're offended by flip-flopping. I think they understand the greater purpose to it and aren't looking at it as like, hey, I'm the weak link. And I think, you know, somebody like Hopkins would be up front. I mean, it's, left field is not his first position. So I don't think it's a secret that he might not be the best out there. <laughs> um, so I don't think it'll be that big of a deal. And again, I think it comes down to you have a lot of young guys who are trying to make it to, make it to the big leagues and stick there. I don't think they're going to cause a ruckus over something like that. So one of the questions that people keep asking about the Phillies is when they're going to really ramp up their spending and maybe why they haven't done so already. In fact, our guest, one of our guests from our previous episode, Craig Edwards, wrote a post for Fangraphs on Monday asking, what are the Phillies waiting for? Obviously, their payroll is pretty low. They have a big TV deal. Their payroll has been much higher in the past. So there are questions about why they haven't gone out and gotten, say, one of the top starting pitchers who is still available on the free agent market. So what is their thinking? Is it just that they don't think they're good enough yet to justify spending anything? To me, it's a combination of factors. First, they're going to have a naturally low payroll because if you look at their roster construction, so many of the guys that they're expecting to rely on are younger guys who aren't, haven't reached, you know, arbitration. They're not arbitration eligible. So they're making roughly around the big league minimum salary. So that, that's going to suppress payroll total. And I mean, I think they're willing to make investments where they think the upgrade will be helpful beyond this year. So, you know, adding Carlos Santana, while it shifts, Reese Hoskins to left field, the value you feel like they get at first base, not only defensively, but you have a guy that fits the profile of somebody who gets on regularly on base, who can hit for some power, who can fill that leadership void in the clubhouse. There's certain factors they're looking for, and the Phillies certainly will point to what they added in the offseason and say, hey, you know, we added almost $95 million to our payroll. And, you know, it's fair to mention that. I do think philosophically they have an issue with giving somebody like Jake Arrieta or any starting pitcher that 30s and older of handing out those five, six, seven-year deals. There's a real hesitance. It's not uh, team president Andy McPhail's philosophy to sign players to those kind of deals, especially pitchers. It's something he reiterated in the offseason that it's not something they feel comfortable doing. He acknowledged that at some point maybe they will. But right now, especially with the free agent market the way it is, the Phillies do have some leverage. You know, they're not going to bid against themselves. And, you know, if, if somebody like Arietta comes back to them and says, hey, you know, three-year deal, I'm willing to do that. Yeah, I could definitely see the Phillies adding a, a top-tier starting pitcher that's still available. But the conditions have to be right. They don't want to kind of abandon the philosophy they've employed the last three years. And as tough as that can be, I know – fans tweet me plenty about the fact that they have not added a starting pitcher, whether through the free agent market or trading Cesar Hernandez and an outfielder for one, you know, they're, they're going to play to the market. And right now the market is letting them kind of sit back and see what develops. And, you know, there is not, it's not a sure thing if they add somebody like Jake Arrieta, that there's suddenly a wild card team or a playoff team. There's a lot of question marks still with this team, especially with young players, you know, is Reese Hoskins going to be able to, 
replicate his offensive production, not not necessarily the insane amount of home run fresh that he went on, but can these young guys step up and take a step forward? Is Nick Williams going to strike out a third of the time when he plays? If so, okay, does he fit in the future? So I, I think one underrated move the Phillies could make, if they head into the regular season, standing pat, not adding a starting pitcher, they would be a team to watch at the trade like, trade deadline to add to the team. And not not in terms of one-year rentals, but add add somebody who can make a difference not only in 2018, but the next two, three years. If they can stay somewhat competitive and show some sort of on-field progress in the first couple of months of the season, that would definitely be an avenue that they would explore to add talent before reaching the offseason. So let's talk about some of these question marks. Obviously, in the rotation, Aaron Nola is great. He's an ace. No real problems with Aaron Nola, but... You know, right now the Phillies have leverage over a Jake Arrieta or or Alex Cobb, but they haven't signed either one. So according to the best of your knowledge right now, what would be your Phillies two through five starting rotation depth chart? Because there's there's obviously a lot of names in here, but I I don't know how it's supposed to sort out. I don't even know what's happening with Vince Velasquez, if he can still start and his health. So I'm going to, you're the expert here. What is the rest of the rotation as of what you've seen so far? So Jared Eikhoff would be their number two guy. They're really confident that last year was just, you know, a down year. He had some injury issues and he kind of admitted that he tried to pitch through some stuff probably more than he should have. So they're confident that he can be more like the guy from 2016, who is a pretty consistent starter, almost hit 200 innings for them that year. He's their number two guy. They're expecting him to bounce back. Number three, Vince Velasquez, who is quite the enigma, basically has been since he's reached the majors. And they're really hoping that he finally puts it all together. And I think one big thing that could help him is the expectation for him is not going to be the same as it is for Aaron Nola in terms of the innings they want. They they will be content if they can get five solid innings from him because they feel like they've bolstered the bullpen so they can go to better relievers earlier than they typically would. They don't have to save necessarily Tommy Hunter until the eighth inning. Maybe they employ him to the seventh and you bump up those seventh inning guys to the sixth and fifth. So you have some more depth and there's not going to be that same amount of pressure that, hey, you can't go five innings because you're really hurting the rest of the the pitching staff so that'll be something to watch and the the Phillies are pretty sure they're going to be carrying an extra reliever in the bullpen so that again will kind of address any any issues they have from the rotation specifically for Velasquez number four Nick Pavetta the front office is extremely confident in him they really believe that he learned a lot from last year's up and down rookie season that had some harsh low points but they really believe that if he can elevate his fastball more consistently that pairing that with his off-speed stuff is just going to be a, a really tough combination for hitters. So they're really confident that he has the right mentality, that he learned from last year, and that he's going to take a step forward. So they like him in that number four spot. And then the number five one is is still up for grabs. They don't really have a proven veteran that's really competing for it. They signed Drew Hutchinson to a minor league deal with a big league camp invite. So he's in the mix for that. Probably the front runner right now would be Ben Lively. Uh, he pitched pretty well last year, his rookie season. He got some experience. You know, there's some, the biggest concern for him is he doesn't strike guys out. So he relies on a lot of contact to get out, which means he better be locating. Uh, he's done that so far this spring. He's really filled up the strike zone well and been aggressive, which the team has liked. So he really needs to continue that going forward. And he'll also be competing with Zach Eflin 
uh, for that final spot, who is a guy that he's, he could hit 95. He's had injury problems, though. He had double, I'm trying to say, phrase this right, double patellar tendon surgery to fix his knees, which, is, which have bothered him basically his entire life. So that kind of hurt him going into last season. Then he ended up getting a shoulder injury, which he attributed to not having the strength in his legs and he was overcompensating. But in 2016, he had a stretch in about two week, a two-week span where he threw two complete games. So he has the talent and he has a good fastball that can elevate him and would be a good complementary piece in the rotation. But I'd say right now those three guys are battling out, and I would give, I would give Lively a, a slight edge at the moment. So since the situation in the rotation is sort of uncertain, maybe the Phillies will look to rely pretty heavily on their bullpen. And I know that Kapler said something to your colleague Matt Gelb recently about the possibility of a nine-man pen, which will have a lot of people probably tearing their hair out. But are we going to see the Phillies really try to push the envelope when it comes to pulling their starters early and being extremely aggressive about not having them face hitters three times in a game, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it will obviously depend who it is. There's going to be a lot more trust in Aaron Nola than Vince Velasquez. But I do think it offers a really good safety net where they don't feel like they're in trouble having to go to the bullpen, you know, early in the sixth inning or, hey, we only have five innings of Vince today. You know, we're in trouble. You're able, like I said, you're able to push guys that were pitching in the seventh inning in key roles, guys like Luis Garcia and Adam Morgan. Now you can employ those guys in, say, the sixth inning, and you still have Tommy Hunter and you still have Pat Neshek and Hector Neris and Dubre Ramos. You still have really good arms after those guys. So I do think, depending on the guy, they're going to try it, especially early in the season. They're going to want to build up Velasquez's confidence. So if he is rolling through five, and even if he's only at 85 pitches, I would not be surprised if they were to pull him and say, hey, let's turn this over to the bullpen and let it roll. They've talked a little bit about how it's not realistic to employ the kind of bullpen usage that has become popular in the playoffs that over the course of a season that's just going to wear guys down too much and Kapler really preaches workload management it's been a point of emphasis to the to the point where he is even giving position players extra time off if they've played the day before so they're not going to overuse guys but they're not going to be afraid to turn it over to the bullpen especially since it's an area that they in the offseason reinforced by bringing back bringing back Pat Neshek and signing Tommy Hunter. Obviously, nothing has happened yet. He's still on the team, but uh, for some reason, Cesar Hernandez has been one of the better second basemen in baseball for three years since he started becoming a regular, but it seems like every week or two, he's also the centerpiece of some new trade rumor, and I, the fact that he's still with the Phillies clearly reflects on the fact that he is valued by the team, but why... Why does it seem like Hernandez is considered so expendable? Because you look at him and he's club controlled. He's good. He's 27 years old. I know Scott Kingery's coming up behind him, but he hasn't proven anything yet. What is Cesar Hernandez's, I don't know, job security in Philly? And why isn't he talked about as a guy that they might want to even extend for the future? I mean, I think the big thing is Scott Kingery. I think the conversation would be very different if they didn't have him playing like he has this past year. And the fact that Kingery had that power surge over the last year and saw it carry to AAA, you know, after he got out of a hitter's park in Reading. So I, I think what what Kingery can do is a little bit better than what Cesar can currently do. So Kingery is a guy that can steal bases. That's never really been 
Cesar's forte. Uh, he, he's been in double digits the last three years, but he's had varying success of that, and he's not somebody that they really look at as a true base stealer. And I think part of it, too, he, he got better defensively last year. When he first took over second base for Chase Utley, there were definitely a lot of concerns defensively, but he worked really hard with Larry Boa the last couple of years to change that. And But I think when you look at Scott Kingery, I mean, watching him in spring, it's he's pretty incredible looking. And he, he looked great last spring. And just the ceiling for what Kingery could do between hitting for power, he also he plays really solid defense at second base. He can steal bases. He really can be a complete package. And I think for, for Hernandez, he, he does a lot of stuff well. And he's really – his consistency the last two years is kind of crazy. Like, he's hit the same average, two points off of an on-base percentage. And he's – as you said, he's one of the top second basemen in the league. I just think the potential of what Kingery can offer is greater than what Hernandez currently is. And plus, you know, they they have pieces – they have so many infielders and guys that can play multiple positions that if you can use Hernandez to say find a way to upgrade the rotation or you know bring back a another dynamic arm for the bullpen, it is something that they'll have to explore. But it's not an easy situation. Like you said, they clearly value him because they had a high asking price for him. They were not going to give him away and move him just to move him to open a spot for Kingery. So it's certainly a dilemma, but. Kingery's potential and his makeup and what they've seen from him, they they just really like. And they think, you know, he's a guy that could be playing second base, you know, five years from now. So, so much of the Philly success this season depends on younger guys, some of the starters we've talked about, some of the position players who are just embarking on their first full seasons in the majors, whether it's Jorge Alfaro, J.P. Crawford, Nick Williams, Reese Hoskins, etc., But the Phillies still have the sixth best farm system in baseball, according to Baseball America's most recent rankings. So is that largely lower level talent or do they have still, even after graduating all these guys, another wave of reinforcements who are close to the majors? Yeah, for the Phillies, it's kind of a mix. You know, they have some guys that they're going to have to consider, okay, are are we keeping these guys as a starting pitcher? Are we going to move them to the bullpen and maybe accelerate their rise to the big leagues to help us? Their top guy is right-hander Sixto Sanchez. Uh, if you ask anybody about him, they they rave about how loose and easy his delivery is. Obviously, he has a fastball that can hit triple digits. He's still working to develop the off-speed stuff, but he's still a lower-level guy, you know, has just barely got to high A last year. So he, he's a intriguing guy, but not exactly on a fast track at the moment. And you're slowly starting to see some of these guys get graduate. So I know, you know, Crawford is con- technically considered a prospect because he didn't exceed his rookie status. So you still have that. You still have Alfaro, who is likely going to be their opening day catcher behind the plate. But beyond that, you have a lot of young guys. You have Mickey Moniak, Adam Paisley. These are guys at low A who are a while away. Jalen Ortiz, you know, who had been playing for the Dominican team. And in terms of the biggest thing is every team wants to do nowadays because of the premium on trying to get good, controllable starting pitchers is developing those starting pitchers. And they have arms that maybe profile as it. Franklin Kiwome, uh, he's in big league camp. He has a strong arm. 
Uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez has looked really good, and he could be a candidate to be moved to the bullpen and start there at double A as a guy who potentially could get to the big leagues by the end of the year. So they still have some of that high-end talent, but there's a pretty big gap between, you know, the Kingeries, the Croppers, the Alfaros, who are either in the big leagues or right on the cusp of it, or you have the guys like Sixto Sanchez, Paisley Moniak, who are in the low levels. That's going to be a while. So they kind of have a gap between those two. So they really, that's part of the reason why that you really need to, for them, have guys like Crawford and Kingery and Alfaro be the real deal in the big leagues because there's going to be that gap between the talent. Yeah. It's funny how we've talked about the Phillies for half an hour and we really haven't even mentioned Michael Franco, who seemed like yeah. he would be the centerpiece of this whole rebuild a couple of years ago and now seems almost like an afterthought at the advanced age of 25. Uh, obviously, he's coming off two seasons that were disappointing in comparison to what he did in 2015. But is there still hope for a significant bounce back here or has he just sort of stagnated in a, a permanent way? The hope is certainly there. I mean, he has the talent. If he has stretches where, which, which would frustrate the previous coaching staff, he'd have stretches where for 10 days he would carry the offense because he would just, you know, catch lightning in a bottle and, you know, spray the ball all over the field, hit for power, wasn't swinging out of his shoes. And then he would regress to bad habits where he's chasing balls low and away, not being patient, not understanding the game situation or the the situation of the count. He was one of the worst hitters last year when being up in the count. I believe it was 2-0. He was one of the worst hitters, which that's a concern (laughs) because if you're not taking advantage when you have the power in the situation, that creates concerns about what kind of adjustment you can make. Mm -hmm. So the front office still believes in him because they see what he can do when he gets hot. Certainly, though, time is running out. Yeah. They have to find out what these guys can do. This is a huge offseason coming up in terms of free agency. There's so many big names out there. The Phillies are going to be players. So in many regards, I think it's safe to say that this is Franco's last chance with the Phillies because it's to the point now where he has enough big league experience. He has over 1,600 plate appearances that it's going to become about production. You have to show what you can do. It's not going to be about potential anymore, especially as you have the conundrum of, okay, we have Scott Kingery ready to, to promote him. What do we do with him and Cesar? Not that either of those guys are third baseman, but you can get creative if, if Bronco's no longer part of the equation. So he, he it would be in his best interest to, to start the year strong, but yeah, Maybe another hitting coach will get him on track. It'll be his third one in three years. So maybe a different voice again will will help him find that consistency. But yeah, he he definitely went from being a cornerstone of the rebuild to potentially being left out of it. All right. Well, time is also running out on this segment. But before it does, we must ask how many games the Phillies will win in 2018. So I don't think they're going to be, they're not going to be, in my opinion, able to make that huge jump that it seems like every, every year there's one or two teams that go from awful to wild card team. Mm-hmm. But I, I'll predict a 77 and 85 record, which would still be a pretty significant jump for them. Uh, it'd be a, an 11 game uh, difference from 11 more wins from last year. So I think they have the offensive young talent to make that happen. The biggest question mark as we've discussed at length, is going to be that rotation. There's so many question marks after Nola and maybe Eikhoff. But if they can get a little bit of improvement from some of those young starters in particular, 
I think they can can make a, a somewhat noticeable jump up into the standings and get closer to, to 500. Okay. All right. So you can follow Megan on Twitter at M underscore Montemuro. You can also follow her all season at The Athletic Philadelphia. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Megan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Okay, that will do it for today. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild and pledging some small monthly amount. Five listeners who have recently done so include Dan Beachler, Matthew Gardner, Grant Pearson, Tyler Stafford, and Joseph Bunyan. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Helps us out if you leave a rating and review. Boosts us up the charts. Makes us more appealing to prospective listeners. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will get to your questions next time. Remember to check out our sister site, the blog started by Effectively Wild listeners, Banished to the Pen. That's banishedtothepen.com, where you can find written previews to accompany our podcast previews. You'll find a link on our show page. You'll also find a link to the Effectively Wild wiki, where the crowdsourced effort is making great headway. I think we're up to around 200 episodes already recapped and summarized with many more claimed and on the way. It's been fun to watch the wiki grow. We will be back to talk to you soon. Beat up the drum,